0: I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 8. You have a Bible this morning. Uh, we'll be in verse 40 to verse 56 and talking about w- when God delays. Um, where's our hope, our faith when God delays? And so as you're turning there, I want to pray for us and uh, pray for our time in the Word and then we'll, we'll jump in. Lord, we're thankful for this time and for your goodness to your people. And God, I pray for this church in particular. I'm grateful you put them in a uh, Hollister, Lord, in this growing community, uh, that they're a gospel witness, um, light. Lord, to the world as you shine through them. And I pray, God, that you would give them endurance. I pray that you would give them uh, just a deeper sense of faithfulness, Lord, and hope in you. Uh, We know they're searching for a a new lead pastor, God, but in this time, I pray for endurance everyone serving, everyone who's uh, opening the word and discipling and shepherding and teaching kids ministry and ushering and all the different things that happen with worship and stuff like that, Lord. Um, It's such a great thing to be reminded that the church is not one person, Lord, besides your son, Christ, and we are his body. And so, God, we pray that you would give them endurance, help them to grow in love for one another, Lord, that they may abound in love. And um, God, in your timing, would you bring them um, the right lead pastor uh, to help them to uh, stay close to you, to shepherd them uh, in the word and in care and in prayer. And God, we pray uh, to you as we open up the word that you give us um, conviction in our hearts, Lord, around what's there. Help us to trust in you. Help us to uh, walk with you in a deeper and more sure way. And God, as I mentioned before, we do pray for BJ Lopez and for his family as BJ goes to Iraq. We pray that you would help him to equip missionaries in a really difficult place, Lord. Uh, but we pray that you would use that time um, to bring encouragement and refreshment to the missionaries he's connecting with. And God, would your name go forth in a dark place. Would your name go forth in the Middle East and in Iraq, Lord. Uh, May people turn from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. We pray all this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. All right, so uh, can you imagine never having to worry about time? Never having to worry about time. You don't have to worry about deadlines or running late or how long something takes to cook. You never have to worry about time. Now, some of you might be thinking, like, David... I don't worry about time at the moment. I don't think about time. Um, but many of us do. I became aware of what people call event-based cultures when I was in my 20s. I don't know if you're familiar with the distinction between time-based and event-based cultures, but people grow up like in a time-based culture. It's all about when something starts and when it ends. I want to know the beginning and end time. So if something starts at 9.30, I'm there at 9.30, and it was supposed to end at 10.15, it better end at 10.15. Um, some of you, though, are like, I'll get there when I get there, and I'll stay because it's all about the event. It's all about showing up for the birthday party or showing up for the retirement party or showing up for church. It doesn't matter because whatever it might be, it's that that's what it is. So you walk in 20 minutes late, you stay two hours late. It doesn't matter. It's all about the event itself. But for some people, it's more than just like being about the event. For some people, I'm not sure if you've heard this. Like it came new to me a few weeks ago, but there's a medical condition called dyschronometria. Anyone here heard of that before? No, I didn't either. It's where someone is unable to accurately process time passing. Now, this is not the moment to elbow like your spouse, your child, or whatever. I mean, I don't know about you, but the the slowest, time goes by the most slowly when my kids are putting their shoes on, okay? I don't know about you, but, but... It's someone who, this chronometry is someone that they cannot, their brain cannot sense whether it's been five minutes or five hours in time. It's a complete sense of being outside of time altogether. And much of our lives are built around a sense of urgency as we interact with time. Even event based people, when something's urgent, they become hyper aware of time. Now you may have experienced this in your life. You know when you need to be someplace at some time, whatever, you, and it's an urgent moment where you become hyper aware of how long something takes to pass. Um, this past summer, I was speaking up at a camp, uh, a Mount Herman camp. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mount Herman, but I get to speak at their family camps for youth ministry stuff quite a bit, which is really fun. And uh, they had me come back uh, and speak at a weekend camp up there. And because of how things worked out, I wasn't able to take my family with me the second time. I was up there by myself speaking and teaching. Uh, and um, my kids are home with um, some sort of sickness. They were home, just like you know, they had like that deep whooping type cough thing. No one, like they didn't test positive for anything. It wasn't COVID. It wasn't RSV. It wasn't strep. It wasn't the flu. It was like they, no one knew what it was. Okay. And so, um, my youngest son, Evan. We have five kids. Uh, it's quite the journey. We fill the minivan, uh, you know, but we have five kids. And my youngest kid is six. But my youngest son, Evan, is eight. And uh, Evan gets kind of funky in his lungs whenever he gets a respiratory illness. And it goes back to him getting RSV when he was like 10 weeks old. He's been, every time he gets a respiratory illness, he gets on an inhaler and stuff. And he gets kind of funky with that. Uh, But it was summer, and it was weird. I don't know why in like August, he had like this deep cough and was on the inhaler. Um, But I was asleep at camp uh, up there uh, on Friday night. I was teaching that weekend. I was asleep. And so uh, I, I wake up to a call Uh, around like 3 in the morning, and I had missed a number of calls previously, Uh, but my wife called me and finally got a hold of me and said, hey, I'm on my way to the hospital. And I'm like, what in the world happened? Like he seemed like he was turning a corner, like he was improving, and it was getting better. But even though he was on the mend, I guess all the phlegm that night settled into his lungs, and he woke up coughing uh, for a 10 to 12-minute like nonstop coughing fit. And my wife called the paramedics. And so uh, in those five or six minutes of, of time waiting for the paramedics to come, my, my wife's life slowed down to an agonizing halt. Like those are like the longest five or six minutes, you know, that you can experience. Uh, you don't know what to do. You uh, aren't sure how to, um, how to help. Um, he's, doing, he's doing great now, but in that moment, uh, he looked at my wife and he said, Mom, I think I'm dying. Um crazy, I can't imagine, and I'm just asleep, like an hour away, like waiting for phone calls that I can't hear, you know. Uh, the whole time, uh, I'm just blissfully unaware, unable to help. Uh, the paramedics came, they gave him some steroids, he bounced back pretty quickly, he took an ambulance ride, which he thinks is really cool, um, it's a good Sam hospital, um, but it's so freaky to feel powerless and not able to control time. Not able to control time. One second here real quick. This has not happened to me before, but my printing and my notes, like, got messed up. So, I have a second page here, though. Uh, It didn't print page two, but every other page is printed, so. (laughs) I didn't print page two on this one either. (laughs) You will never know what page two is supposed to say, (laughs) and neither will I. We'll see how this goes. It's the first time for me, so. Anyways, um, I, I think in our passage of Scripture today, uh, we see something really interesting uh, related to time. Uh, we see that uh, Jesus uh, comes to this community, comes to this people who are waiting for him, and uh, he doesn't rush. He's not urgent. He has no sense of time. And uh, what ends up happening is he actually slows down, he actually delays. And so, if you'll turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 40, I will unpack what we see here. We'll read verse 40 to 42. Might be a familiar story for you. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For they were waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. And the people went and the people pressed around him. Let's pause there. Uh, previously to this, Jesus uh, was uh, across the, the water uh, of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, it's called a sea because I think the Jews didn't really, you know, they weren't really a seafaring people. It's really a lake. I mean, it's a really small um, area, but it's, it's a unique spot. It's set kind of in the midst of like a bowl around, uh, around mountains around it. It gets really weird weather at times, but there were about 10 cities around it that were filled with mainly Gentiles, people who weren't Jews. Uh, And there were Jews in there too, but they were called uh, it was called the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. And uh, he was across the lake. He was uh, there, healing a man who was possessed by demons. You might be familiar with the story, but he lives among the tombs. He is a guy who, when he gets worked up with this demonic spirit thing, would be uh, kind of incredibly strong, uh, kind of wild, and people were just afraid of him. And Jesus comes into the the area, into the into the tomb area, into the cemetery, and and heals him of this of these demons. And um, it's when they flee, when he he casts the demons out, they ask Jesus if uh, if they can escape into this herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs goes over the cliffs into the water, right? So you might be familiar with the story, but if you look back at chapter 8, verse 39, 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away, saying this, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So he left happy. But if you go back to verse 37, the people surrounding uh, the, the garrisons asked him to depart, asked Jesus to leave. For they were seized with a great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. And so Jesus leaves one crowd that's that's fearful, kind of angry with him for what he did, because you know, kind of ruined their economic situation. The pigs left. I mean, they were also freaked out. Who is this guy that he command the demons? And they would listen to him. And so he leaves like this angry mob of people and goes on the boat back across the Sea of Galilee into verse 40 here. He returned and he leaves one crowd of people, one angry mob, and he, he meets a happy mob. He meets a mob of people who are excited to see him. They're waiting for him. And so it's this large crowd of people. Now, I don't know if you've ever been uh, in a really large crowd before, um, but, you know, I've been to, like, Giants games, like baseball games, and maybe you've been to, like, the Niners, Oakland Stadium, whatever, San Jose Sharks, someplace where a lot of people gather together. It's crazy for me to think that uh, at the AT&T Park, what do they call it now, the Giants Stadium, um, people that gather there, like, our whole city fits in that stadium. Like, 40,000 people fit in that stadium. And so, if you've ever been to that stadium in particular, and you're leaving... What ends up happening is there's this mob of people. Like, you, you, you're walking kind of like, you know, like this, and then, you know, you take like the ramps going, there's like these like, long ramps going down, it just takes forever to leave. Uh, it's hard when you're in a large crowd to be a person who's, who's trying to be urgent about anything. And so this crowd meets him uh, when he gets off the boat, and out of that crowd, there's one man who presses forward, his name's Jairus. He presses forward because he needs to see Jesus. He has an urgent need in his life. He was a ruler of the synagogue. It means that he was someone that was important, the people would have known. And he's falling at the feet of Jesus, begging him to come to his house because his daughter is dying. His daughter is dying. We see he's exhausted, he's helpless, he's stressed. And the other stories about Jesus were told that he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. This is this is ambulance time for him, and we see in verse forty two, Jesus wants to help them and goes with them, but there's that one huge problem: there's the crowd. They start moving, but everyone who came to see Jesus, he said, Jesus is leaving, and they follow him. It's that feeling of being urgent but also unable to move. It's a terrible feeling. You have to be somewhere, but traffic is stuck. People won't get out of the way, so you're going forward slowly. You can imagine how hard this would have been for Jairus. Jesus could not move fast enough for him. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, people knew about Jesus. They knew that he healed people. They knew that he did these miracles. But no one had seen him raise somebody from the dead yet. So if you're thinking about what can Jesus do, what is Jesus about? We know he's a teacher. We know he teaches with authority. We know he does miracles. It's like he walks on water. He feeds people, like large crowds of people. He's healed the sick. But no one's seen him reach down into death yet and bring someone back. And so to them, Jesus is so limited by certain things. And so Jairus thinks, I need to get him to my daughter as quickly as possible. There is urgency. We got to move. And again, everyone knew Jairus. He was an important man. Certainly, if Jesus helped somebody, it'd be him. It's interesting. He's used to like. I'm not trying to like. I don't know his heart. I don't know if he like loved being important or not. I don't know if he's a prideful person. I don't assume that. But he was used to being important. He was used to being known. He uh, kind of coordinated the synagogue. The place of like Jewish learning, he uh, was known in the community. People would have known his daughter was sick, yet they still crowd around him, and they still are there where he's, you know, trying to get back to his daughter, but not in a fast, quick way. They knew his position, his money, his leadership, but none of that could help. He was helpless. None of that could help him. He had no other options besides get Jesus to his daughter. But at least they're moving in the right direction, but time was slowing down, but they'd get there. They would get there, but then the unthinkable happens for Jairus. An emergency pops up. Another interruption. The worst thing that happened in an emergency. Look at verse 42, the ends of people pressing around him, no sense of his personal space or what would be appropriate in our modern world, but the crowd was pressing around him, and out of that crowd, someone else who is desperate stops Jesus. Look at verse 43. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe, the very end of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood Ceased. Another person comes into the story, um, someone who was the opposite of Jairus in almost every way. Um, she was not considered important. Now, look at the text. Like, there's, there's no mention of her name, right? Uh, we get no background for her. The other scriptures, like, you know, Jairus is the, you know, the ruler of the synagogue. We have his name, um, this woman's completely different. Jairus had this urgent situation. He's rushing to get Jesus to his daughter before it's too late, so it's urgency. What's this woman's problem? She had a long-term illness, 12 years. Like, she, she for better or worse, had learned to live with this. She was in a, a place of, like, of homeostasis, which is a place where, like, things were just kind of normal for her. But she was exhausted, too, because she tried and failed to be healed. She spent all of her money on physicians. She has this chronic, ongoing problem, medical issue, something she's learned to live with. We're not sure what exactly it was, but it involved bleeding for 12 years. And she tried everything she could to get healed and spent all her money on doctors. Other gospels tell us that she was made worse by the doctors. I wouldn't want to be, like, in a medical situation in the ancient world, you know what I mean? But get this, everything made her worse. Diagnosing a chronic condition like this in our modern world is difficult, right? You can run tests, you can do some x ray scans, MRIs, and you can still take months to figure out what's wrong. If you ever know. It's why you go to WebMD and you put your symptoms in, and it can range from uh, a sore throat to like you're never getting better. Like we, just, we have a hard time in our modern world with being able to look inside your body and tell you what's wrong. I can't even imagine the ancient world what could you do lots of trial and error Um, I grew up with a lot of confidence in doctors as a kid I had no clue but my mind would always drift towards well something's wrong they must know what it is and can fix it super naive my 10 year old self thought that way let's just go to the doctor They'll, they'll tell us what's wrong they'll fix it you know but this woman thought the same thing, which is why she was seeking out Jesus. She said someone had to know, someone has to be able to fix my pain. It wasn't the physicians, it must be him. It must be Jesus. She had heard the stories, maybe she even witnessed some of the healings. She knew something was different with this guy if she could just get near her near him. So she's helpless She heard about Jesus and she thinks if I could just reach out and touch his robe, my fingertips, my fingertips could touch his robe, grasp the corner of one of the strings, then I will be healed. So she makes her way through the crowd unnoticed and she touched his robe and she's immediately healed. And and Luke wants us to understand that she wanted to be healed and then leave. She didn't want attention she didn't want Jesus to talk to her. She wanted to get to Jesus and then go. She was used to being unnoticed. It's why she's unnamed. And her touching a respected rabbi like Jesus was a huge risk. Her, her bleeding meant that she was ceremonially unclean. She's not allowed to go to the temple for worship. And at this time, if you touched blood or bleeding like this, you weren't allowed to go into the synagogue if you touched someone else, they were ritualistically unclean. In the Old Testament law, they had all these rules around cleanliness and purity and the ability to uh, be in public spaces with other people. And so her struggles, imperfections, her uncleanliness, what happened when she touched Jesus? The law would say that if she touched Jesus, Jesus would become unclean. That's what the Old Testament law would say. But what happens in the story is the reverse happens. She touches Jesus and immediately she's clean. Her struggles, imperfections, her uncleanliness went away. Jesus is not messed up by our defilement. Like our sin doesn't transmit to Jesus where he becomes unclean. It's the opposite that happens. When we go to Jesus with our needs, when we go to Jesus with our sin, we go to him with our, our problems, our struggles, he's not messed up by those things. He invites us to bring them to him. So in the Old Testament law, if something unclean touched something that was clean, the math was the clean thing became unclean. Make sense? If I was ritualistically unclean according to the law of Moses, and I walked to the temple without purifying myself, by following the Mosaic's law the description of what to do, and I picked up the holy items in the temple that were dedicated and set aside for the purpose of worship, then they'd be unclean. Their cleanliness did not make the unclean person clean. You with me on that? It's like I'm saying clean a lot, you get, but you get it, right? But the reverse happens with Jesus. She didn't make him unclean, but instead his cleanliness, his holiness, purity, power flowed towards her and made her whole. So we can't mess up Jesus with our problems. Like he makes us holy when we go to him with our sin. When we look to him for forgiveness. We look to him with our problems. Our burdens are not too much for him to bear. The only way this goes bad is if we don't bring our burdens to God. Our burdens are never too much for him to bear. Sometimes when our, when our pain is chronic, our situation feels hopeless, or our sin feels insurmountable, or our grief is too much to bear, we stay in the crowd instead of reaching out for the edge of his robe. So she takes this huge risk by walking through the crowd, bumping into people along the way. She takes a huge risk to touch Jesus. If people knew they would be ticked, that she didn't care about how she made all these people unclean. But in this, she demonstrates great faith. She made her move. She's healed, and she tries to get away unnoticed because that is how she lived her life. Her life was behind the scenes, unnamed, unnoticed. But then the unthinkable happens both for her and for Jairus. What does Jesus do? He stops. Look at verse 45. God delays. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? They're in a crowd. Jesus, everyone touched you. But you can imagine being Jairus here. His daughter is literally minutes away from dying. He's desperate and helpless. And Jesus stops. What? we got to move, Jesus. This is urgent. But Jesus has no sense of time right now. I mean, he does, but you know what I mean. He's not urgent with it. We have two very different people, both helpless, both in need of faith, both in need of hope, both in need of Jesus. We have Jairus and the woman. And guys, your greatest need is never comfort, not an easy life. Your greatest need is always Jesus. When life's going well, when life is easy, hope doesn't matter much in those times, but helplessness leads us towards hope. Feeling helpless leads us towards hope. And that's why Jesus delays. Verse 45 again. Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus, Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power's gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, when she was no longer behind the scenes or unnamed or unnoticed, when she saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declaring in the presence of all why she had touched him. And how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Your faith has made you well, go in peace. Instead of moving on and getting Jairus home, Jesus slows things down. He questions, who touched me? Power's gone out. What happened? Did Jesus not know who touched him? The one who knows all things? He was kind of like a live wire in that moment, right? I don't know if you've ever been shocked before. Uh, I was shocked one time. I was hanging up Christmas lights uh, on a 10-foot ladder in our, uh, in, my, in our, like, fellowship space at our church, and I uh, had the, 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 you know, volts arc through my arm. It was a really weird feeling. Only time it's ever happened. Don't want to experience it again. But he was like a live wire to this woman. That touch healed her. But he stops the crowd and gathered up his disciples. And again, verse 45, who touched me, he asked. And the crowd was like, wasn't me. All denied it. Everyone denied it. And then Peter was like, everyone's touching you, Jesus. You know, I love Peter. <laughs> but this touch was different. Power went out to heal from his wholeness to her brokenness. How long did this interaction take? Who touched me? Everyone's like, wasn't me, wasn't me. No, I know it. How long did this take? Minutes? Whatever, it's just like, those minutes were so long for Jairus. Why does he delay? Why does he take his time? That is the most interesting part of the story for me. Why does he delay? Why does he take his time? I think Jesus delayed because he wanted to show these two people something about who he is. He wants to call this woman out of her hiding, and because he wanted gyrus to grow even more helpless, so he'd grow in his hope. Those are not easy times when God is delaying to make it where you grow even more helpless. So you grow in your hope. To the unknown woman, God is saying, I notice your suffering. And to gyrus, he's saying, Helplessness leads to hope. I notice your suffering, and helplessness leads to hope. First, notice what happened to the woman. Again, the woman reached out with fear, desperately touching the edge of his robe, and instead of just moving on with Jairus, Jesus stops the whole crowd around him, says, someone touched me. When she saw that she was noticed, she came forward in fear and fell down at his feet. And there's something important he's showing her. God isn't just someone we get something from and walk away. Some of us treat God that way. When you say people today about religious beliefs. The most common religious belief is that, you know, there's a God, and he exists for our needs. He exists for us to receive something from, but he's not personally involved. He's not there in your day-to-day life. He only cares when you have a great need a fancy term for it. it's moralistic therapeutic deism um, write it down I might show up on Jeopardy someday I don't know but God cares about whether I'm a good person moralism God wants me to be happy therapeutic deism God's not actively involved in our day to day life he's only involved when there's a crisis we don't need to invite God day to day into our life our world so she thought that way not exactly in those terms. she thought if I just get what I need from him and go away it'll, it'll be great and some of us treat God that way The God of Scripture is not that God. That's a God of our own making. And this woman wanted to get healed by Jesus and walk away. She was happy to get something from God and leave. But Jesus calls her forward, forcing her into this uncomfortable position of being noticed. Verse 47, she realized she was not hidden and was trembling. And get this, she's forced to tell her story to the whole crowd. Did you catch that? Verse 47. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. She has to own up to her brokenness, own up to her like body's sickness, the 12 years that she experienced. All that to this large group of people, all while Jairus is waiting. She's like, I've been unnoticed, I've been separated from God and the community because my chronic illness, my chronic pain, I've spent all my money on doctors, they made things worse. And I thought if I could just get close enough to Jesus, then I could be made whole. Why did Jesus put her through this instead of letting her get away? Because God wants you to know that your suffering is not unnoticed. Something I say a lot back at my home church is you may uh, you may feel lonely, but you're never alone. If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, you have a loving Father, you have a Savior in Jesus. The book of Hebrews refers to Jesus as your brother. You have God's people in the church. And our sin nature and the devil would be content for all of us to suffer in silence, for all of us to feel alone. Because when we're alone, we isolate, we're easily beat up. But one of those powerful things you can do in those times to go to God is to go to your, your church family. Your suffering is not unnoticed by God. And so one of the biggest lies we believe when we're going through hard times is that we think we're the only ones. And Jesus delays, Jesus stops to tell us no matter how we feel, whether we feel like no one knows what we're going through. God does. He notices he knows. And some of you are thinking, like, oh, yeah, but he's God. He has to know. Like, yeah, he, understands, he knows all things, right? You know, but it's like this theoretical knowing in our minds. But no, 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 no. God doesn't just understand the suffering you go through, but the gospel is that God the Son took on humanity. Jesus took on human nature and he experienced it all. All the suffering. He was abandoned by friends. He experienced tremendous pain on the cross. All the things we can go through, all the temptations we could experience, he, he experienced. So God, God like in a, Jesus in his divine nature, never suffered, but in his human nature, he did. He understands. So the early church had a really hard time getting this. They had a really hard time understanding how God could experience, God the Son in Jesus could experience this. And so it may sound crazy to us today, but there's a false teaching going around in the early couple centuries of the church called decetism. It's this Greek word to mean to, to seem or to show. Don't write, It doesn't matter. You don't need to know the word. But the idea behind this heresy was that Jesus only appeared to have a human nature. He only appeared to suffer. On the cross, he was like going through this act of like suffering, but it wasn't real. And the early church is like, no, that is not what the scripture teaches. He... Suffered in the flesh, he suffered fully in his human nature, He knows. and so the cross shows us Jesus experienced rejection from people he came to save, that the people he came to save pushed him away, that he was abandoned by his friends, he was left alone at the time of his greatest need. He suffered more intense pain than any of us will ever know. and all of it happened for the forgiveness of our sin. So, God could demonstrate His love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so that we couldn't go to God and say, You don't understand what I'm going through. Look, God knows exactly what you're going through. He experienced rejection, pain, loneliness. Your suffering is not unnoticed by God. And so, Jesus slows this group down so this woman who felt hidden and alone would know that God sees and God knows her suffering. But a second thing happens here, too. Jesus slows down because this woman's lived in isolation for 12 years, but he's in the process of bringing her into a family. Notice verse 48. What does he call her? Daughter. The gospel is about the forgiveness of our sin, the good news, what God's done to reconcile us, to take us out of the kingdom of darkness, to bring him into the kingdom of his his beloved son. So we be forgiven and declared righteous, but the gospel's also about being brought into family. Um, people theologians talk about what happens at that moment we place our faith in Christ. There's two sides to the same coin: there's justification, we're made right, we're forgiven of our sin, but we're also adopted into God's family. We're brought into God's people. And so he calls her into relationship in verse 48. We we learn at this point in the story there's more than one daughter in the story. Remember the beginning? Jairus, like, my daughter's at the point of death. We got to go, Jesus. And he delays to tell Jairus there's more than one daughter in this story. This whole time, the crowd's focused on Jairus' daughter, but this woman is a daughter too. At uh, this point, um, Mark in his gospel, when Mark writes about the story that happened, uh, he tells the same story. And I want to stay in Luke, but, but I think it's really interesting. Uh, in Mark five forty two, when he mentions Jairus' daughter, he gives us an age for his daughter. Any guess on how old she was? Twelve years. Twelve years. Like there's a there's this a a symmetry in the story. I don't think that her, the daughter is related to this woman or anything like that. But there's a symmetry in the story. These two women. Um, for 12 years, right? So Jairus loving his daughter for 12 years, and this woman experiencing desperation and loneliness for 12 years, finally brought into the family. And so Jesus delays to show us that this woman, show her that it's not just about getting something from God, but that she matters and she is a daughter to God. And so why did God delay We know why God delayed for her, right? Her suffering's not unnoticed. Why did God delay for Jairus? Well, Jairus is there. I kind of imagine him like outside the crowd, outside the disciples, as they're all arguing over there. He's 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 here waiting. Um, He's probably feeling desperate, he's probably feeling urgent, but he's not interrupting in the story. And that whole time he's waiting and hoping, he's helpless. And so Jesus delays to teach Jairus that for his people, helplessness leads to hope. Look at verse 49. Uh, While he was still speaking, so Jesus is talking to this crowd, talking to this woman. While he's still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Jesus is talking to this woman when the people from Jairus' home interrupt him while he was still speaking, it says. And we don't know if they interrupt Jesus, or they just pull Jairus aside and they tell him to give up hope. But the words are, Your daughter is dead, don't bother the teacher anymore. Their words are give up hope. Give up hope. So Jesus heard this and though and, and looked at Jairus, knowing his faith was faltering, knowing that he was fragile, and he speaks confidently to him do not fear but believe. Why did Jairus' faith seem to falter in this moment? Why does Jesus speak assurance to him right now? Because Jairus came to Jesus with enough faith that Jesus could heal his daughter, but not enough faith to think that Jesus could bring her back. Not believing he could raise her from the dead. Jesus is pushing Jairus to believe deeper, to know that God is with him, and by doing so, Jesus proves his power over death. Look at verse 51. Verse 51. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child, for all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. Um, Jesus has a different point of view from everyone in the story here. He um, has different view of death. Notice everyone refers to the daughter as dead. How does Jesus refer to her? She's not dead, but she is sleeping. And they all laugh at Jesus. They're like, Jesus, we know what death is. They're all thinking, Jesus, we know what this looks like. She's gone. They laughed knowing she was dead. Could it be... That we don't really know what we think we know? Could it be that we don't really know what we think we know? Especially in times of suffering, could it be that we see on the surface what we see is not always what's really true? For this crowd, they were certain that it was too late. They did not know how God would or could use the situation for good, for a good they could not predict. And such is the same when God delays in our lives. We see the surface. We're tempted to give up hope. We're tempted to have our faith falter. Could it be that what we see is not really what's true? That there's something deeper that God is doing, something that God is doing in our midst in those times where he delays. Could it be that when you feel alone or hurting or in pain and you know that God has abandoned you, or that God doesn't care, or whatever thing pops into your mind in those times, could it be that you really don't know what you think you know? What if the thing you're going through in this very moment, the thing that you think God doesn't care about is happening in your life right now precisely because God is taking you on a journey to deeper faith? And that's so easy for me to say in times where things are comfortable and easy, but when you're in the midst of it, that's so hard to hold on to. That's why it's so important to fill your mind with good theology, good thoughts about God in times where life is going well. So when times life is falling apart, when you in the darkness, you can cling to what you learned when it was the light. So important. Getting back to Jairus, Jesus said she was asleep because to God, death is not the end. In fact, look at how he raises her from the dead. Look at verse 54. He takes her by the hand. By the hand. He takes her by the hand saying, child, our little one, wake up. It doesn't say little one be raised from the dead. He says, little one, it's time to get up. Uh, The words little one here can better be translated as honey, sweetie, it's time to get up. Like a parent waking you up in the morning, not your mom ripping off the covers or throwing water on you or whatever, but leaning over and saying, honey, it's time. Let's get the day going. Uh, he holds your hand. Uh, when was the last time you held your parents' hand? I'm talking to the adults in this room too. I mean, when was the last time you held your parents' hand? Can you even remember high schoolers, junior hires? I mean, can you remember a time where you held your parents' hand? I, I don't remember the last time I held my parents' hand. I can't fathom a time when that happened. But remember back to being a kid and what it was like when you held your parents' hand um, for many of us, it felt safe. Not for all of us. Some of us had really bad relationships with our parents and it wasn't a safe place to be. But just, if that's you, just imagine, imagine the most positive kind of scenario where you're feeling scared and you reach out to grab your parents' hand. Jesus took her by the hand and he reached down into death saying, honey, it's time to get up. So, Jairus came to Jesus, looking for a cure to a fever, looking to, for a cure to this illness, and he gets more than he gets asked for. He gets his daughter back from the death, from death to life. And so, I, the thing I want us to walk away with this morning is that um, God so often brings us to an end of ourselves, so we learn to trust. He brings us to an end of ourselves so we learn to trust. I mean, um, over the summer, like, I was help I I didn't know what was happening to my son. I didn't, it was helpless, you know. I'm thankful we live in a day and an age where paramedics can be at my house in five minutes where, you know, there's good care, first responders giving good care. So thankful for that. I was just oblivious to the whole thing. Uh, my wife is brought to an end of herself so she would learn to trust. Um, God delays. God brings us to the end of our power and strength so we learn to trust. Uh, God doesn't want anything less for you than to be God with you. That means he walks slowly. He takes his time on the hard path. And he does so so we stick with him so we learn to trust we'd look to him. I mean, all Jairus could do in this whole story was just walk with Jesus, right? All I could do this whole time was just be with Jesus. Feeling helpless isn't fun, but both Jairus and this woman were desperate. It's not a fun place to be, but it's a great place to be because that's where God most often meets us and shows us that when we are weak, he is strong. Do you feel like God's delaying in your life? Do you feel like God is slow Does God have any sense of time? God delays drawing his people towards greater faith. He wants your ultimate hope to be in him. And for you have to get this, God knows what it will take for that to happen. And that's why many of us need to be brought to a place of helplessness for us to really feel hope. So this morning... I just want to give us like three ways to respond and then we'll, we'll pray. Um, first, embrace the waiting. When you feel like God is delaying, ask yourself, what is God trying to teach me in this moment? It could be that God's trying to get your attention. Embrace the waiting. Second, remind yourself, God doesn't change. Did anything change about Jesus the moment that Jairus met him to the moment his daughter died? the moment that Jairus, his daughter, was raised from the dead. Nothing about Jesus changed. The only thing that changed that story was Jairus' trust and his faith. And so remind yourself that God doesn't change. You don't have to lose hope. Your faith doesn't have to falter. So embrace the waiting, remind yourself that God doesn't change. And then finally, prayer and being in God's word are your best hope to experience God with you helplessness that reminder to pray that invitation to go to god in your time of need to spend your time in god's word to be encouraged by the people of god to draw near to him because he's near to us and so in those moments embrace the waiting remind yourself that god doesn't change and and walk with him in prayer walk with him in the community of faith walk with him in the word and we don't know how it all ends we don't know if it'll all end with you know Jesus reaching down to death or people being healed. but We know that God doesn't change, that God cares deeply and that he delays for a reason. He delays so we grow in trust. Let me pray for us and then we'll um, turn to the Lord's table, which is a practical reminder of this truth. Let me pray. God, we're so thankful for you and um, these stories we have in scripture that highlight our need for you and the mystery, Lord, of what you do in this world. God, our sense of urgency is very different than your sense of urgency, and we know that because we're finite creatures. We're created with boundaries. We're created with limits. Uh, We don't see how things will end. Uh, We don't know exactly how we can best, you know, make a situation work. And God, I don't know the stories of the people in here right now, Lord. Um, The hardships they bring, the hope they're looking for in this moment, God. We don't know what you're teaching them. I don't know any of that stuff. But God, you do. You know why you delay. And so for God, some of us here, we need to be um, drawn out of our our isolation, like uh, the woman that Jesus called forth. Some of us here are suffering in silence. We want to be unnoticed and unnamed, Lord. And and you, instead, want to draw them into a community of faith, into a people, Lord, that can care for them and love them where they could be a son or daughter in the midst of a family. And, Lord, for others of us, you're delaying to bring us that point of helplessness so we'd have a real hope not in ourselves but in you. And, God, there's many more things you're doing with uh, our suffering and with sin in this world and with uh, evil and pain and hardship. Where There's many more things you're doing than just these two things, but those are the two things we see in this text. And so God, I pray for folks here who might be feeling hopeless, Lord, whose faith might be faltering, God, that they would trust in you in a deep way and that it wouldn't just be some cliche, God, but something that you turn in their heart, Lord, where they will walk with you as as you seem to delay. And so God, be with us. Help us, Lord, to put our faith in the right thing in your son, Jesus. Help us put our faith in him. to trust you come what may. Get that